Welcome along to another Know My Faith Monday podcast. My guest this time is Perry Trotter, who wears, I don't know if your head's big enough for a number of hats. Well, you've got lots of different coloured caps that you wear. I just like the colours. I watched your videos. How many caps have you got? Oh, I don't know. Ten? No, nothing like that. Two or three that I Two or three, is it? Okay. But you wear a number of hats with different things, so we're going to go through those as we talk. The last time I saw you, we'll start here, was when we welcomed the new Israeli ambassador, um, and that was at a meeting of uh, various different Christian groups who support Israel, but also at the launch of the Holocaust, the Auschwitz Now exhibition in right. Auckland. Yeah. So let's let's start let's start with Auschwitz now. Okay. Well, Auschwitz now is the latest uh, exhibition that we've produced for the Holocaust Foundation. So the Holocaust Foundation is the short name for the Holocaust and Anti-Semitism Foundation Aotearoa New Zealand. So perhaps I'll take a few minutes to describe <laughs> how we got there. Yeah, why not? So I'm I'm not Jewish. I'm a an evangelical, a conservative evangelical. Uh, so the short history of this project is that in 2008, my wife and I and three of our children were traveling through Israel and we spent considerable time staying with Israelis uh, whose children we had hosted in our own home. Right. Like many of your viewers, yep. we've hosted Israelis. So we've probably hosted 500 Israelis in our home. And that was probably in the period 2004 to 2010, something like that. So we're staying at Gun Shmuel, and we learned that there were a number of Holocaust survivors there. And I have been working since 2003 as a professional photographer. And so I've always wanted to photograph Holocaust survivors. So we asked if we could meet these survivors, and we had no particular agenda, no particular project in mind. So you hadn't, you hadn't thought of this in advance? Well, no, no, we didn't know what we would do with the material, but we, Cherie, my wife, interviewed them for up to an hour and a half. I photographed them. And when we got back to New Zealand, I developed a format, which turned out to be a three-minute um, vignette, an excerpt of those survivor accounts. And... Uh, so what I would do is take an excerpt from the story. Uh, I used to work as a musician, so I wrote some music for it. I uh, put it together with black and white portraits of these survivors, yep. and and we created this format. And a year later, uh, I met a gentleman, a Dutch gentleman, who saw the work and said, I want to pay for you to go to Sydney to capture more survivor stories. So I went to Sydney, I went to Melbourne and worked with Sydney Jewish Museum and the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne and we collected more stories. And then 2012 we formed a charitable trust. At that time we called it the Shadows of Shoah. That's right. Many of you viewers will know that uh, Shoah is the Hebrew term for the Holocaust. It's a non-sectarian work, so I wrote into the trust deed that this is to be a non-sectarian work. So. Uh, for obvious reasons, it would be crass and inappropriate yes. for me to make use of these survivor stories for my own sectarian purposes. So we now have a board of 10, and uh, it consists of survivors and academics, a couple of professors and uh, a couple of Christian leaders. But it's an explicitly non-sectarian work. Uh, 
going back to 2012, 2013, we were granted some funds by a Jewish uh, trust in Auckland and we built the Shadows of Shoah exhibition. Uh, Prime Minister of the time, John Key, launched our exhibition in That's January right. 2013. Then subsequently we toured that exhibition to 19 locations from Invercargill to Whangarei and uh, it was very, very hard work. Uh, we we staged it in museums and galleries and, uh, and public spaces. What was the reaction from people when they saw it? Oh, well, they were deeply moved. Uh, and that's always been my intention, is to take the experience of the Jewish people in the Holocaust and to convey it to those who know little or nothing about it. And you'll know that uh, people's reaction time is not what it used to be. Sorry. People's attention time. <laughs> attention time, yeah. It's not what it yeah. used to be. So do you remember the times when you used to go to movies and you'd watch the the credits for the first sort of three or four minutes? Yeah. You know, well, they only lasted for three or four minutes. Now they're all digital. They last for 15 minutes. Who's got yeah. the attention? You just wait for the end scene yeah. well, nowadays. I mean, we, we convey in three minutes yeah. uh, an, a powerful excerpt of a survivor's uh, And I've got to say, Perry, it is because uh, when, when Sharon and I were in Israel, we, all, of course, went to Yad Vashem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you can't believe as you zigzag your way through that and you get to the end and you go, flip, was that four hours? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's just so moving. But what you've been able to do with these stories, with these videos, is a very, very similar um, emotional reaction because what, what you... You haven't just captured... Um, you haven't captured the things that happened. Now, I just listened to an audio book, and I can't remember his name. It's called The Happiest Man on Earth. He's... Uh, Eddie Jakku. Eddie Jakku, yeah. 100-year-old uh, Holocaust survivor in Sydney. Uh, and so he talks about all the different things that happened during his time, escaped from there, all of this. But what you've captured is the feeling mm. of this Holocaust survivor and, and the essence of what this meant to me to be a Jewish person caught up in the middle of this. Mm. And it's it's like um, I had a rock hit my windscreen the other day, right? It was big enough for me to see it coming. Wow. Right? So it was a, to put a decent hole in the windscreen. So it's one of those times where I'm going, no, 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 <laughs> crack. You know, so I, there was nothing I could do to change it. And that's what you've captured, I think, in, in these vignettes is the feeling of these Holocaust survivors of the, I was stuck in the middle of this. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're quite deliberately trying to reach people's heads through their hearts. Yes. So we, we, uh, the power of media, the power of image, the power of music. And having said that, you have to tread a very careful line because you have to be historically very accurate and because so many people are interested in Holocaust denial, if you drop the ball in any respect to regards a historical detail in, yeah. the, in the transcript you use, you're, you're in danger of discrediting the whole mission. So it, it's an important work, I think, yeah. and uh, particularly as Holocaust memory comes under increasing attack. Now, if I, I mean, I'll take a little diversion here and we'll just yep. talk about that issue. Because I know where I'm coming back to, so you divert away. Okay. Well, Holocaust memory, I mean, we, we all know about Holocaust denial, uh, the David, David Irvin case, yep. the, um, the movie Denial. That's the more, ex- uh, how can we say, it's the more direct denial. 
But there is a something called universalization, where people will take the Holocaust, they'll sanitize it to a degree, and then they'll um, utilize it uh, in the service of other causes, whether it be gay rights, whether it be racism of other kinds, whether it be bullying. And in so doing, they're neglecting or denying the broader historical context of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust in particular. Yeah. So to me, it's very important you do not decontextualize the Holocaust. And what I mean yep. by that is the Holocaust is a unique event, but you must see it in its broader historical context. I would argue that for three and a half thousand years, you've had this very powerful uh, attempt to take the Jewish people off the face of the earth. Now, the Holocaust was this peak in that effort, and that's because Germans got involved, and it was almost like a perfect storm. Mm. But the, the hatred towards the Jewish people continues to this day. Well, that's what I was going to say, because when, when you said it's the Holocaust Foundation and then you expanded on the mm -hmm. full name, mm -hmm. it's the Holocaust and Anti-Semitism Foundation. So you're not showing these stories of Holocaust survivors just so that we look at it and listen to it and go, oh, that's really, really sad. You're trying to change people's attitudes towards the Jewish people. Absolutely, I am. Uh, I mean, let's go back a bit. It, it, when I came from, say, the early 90s into a place where I was very interested in, in the place of the Jewish people and did a lot of study, because I grew up in Hawke's Bay. I didn't know any Jewish people. Yeah. And the, probably the first exposure I had to the Jewish people was being taught um, The Merchant of Venice. Okay, yeah. Which is really not a great example. Cut me, do or not bleed. And uh, the, the anti-Semitic tropes yes. are, are appalling. So I was quickly struck or quickly moved by the fact that Christian engagement with the Jewish people throughout history has been appalling, really appalling. Well, I've, I've said on, on previous podcasts, amongst the books that I've narrated for Ariel Ministries was one by Dr. Andrew Jackson called Israel Betrayed. Mm -hmm. um, very hard book to read. I mean, Word-wise, it's a hard book to read, but sure. it, it details the intentional mistreatment of Jewish people yeah. by the Christian church. Yeah, yeah. Which has been hid from... I was talking to Bryce Turner from Christians for Israel about this mm -hmm. uh, on an earlier podcast. That's been intentionally hidden from Christians. Yeah. We, we know nothing about what was done. Yeah, that's right. And so many of the heroes of Christian history, yeah. I mean, you, you know the expression, we're standing on the shoulders of um, giants. On the, yeah. I would suggest in many cases we're standing on the shoulders of monsters, really. I mean, the, the conduct of men like Luther. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and I mean, we pick on him because he's the easiest name to remember, but, but there were plenty. There were plenty. There were plenty. It brings, so, it brings to mind a quote from a um, Jewish scholar, Ephraimson, and he was talking about the theology of Tertullian I mean, more than 1,500 years ago. And, and he made the comment that the road from here, that is the theology of Tertullian, yep. to Auschwitz is long, but you can get there from here. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that, and we're going to get into this later when we talk about that series, the film series I did. Yeah. But I'm not saying that's the only reason the Holocaust happened, but it was a really important part. It's, it's, it's very easy to see that road. Yeah, yeah, it is. There's, there's a, there's a, um, a letter to, is it to Eusebius, I think? Uh, is a, a book, a little book out, one of those Penguin books, Writings of the Early Church Fathers. Mm -hmm. 
And this letter is written 132 AD to a Roman whatever he is, mm-hmm. by, who's asked a question of, a, of his friend who's a Christian. Mm-hmm. And the Christian is responding and saying, now by Christian I mean this is a Gentile Christian, a Roman Christian, who is saying, well, you know, what we believe, we're not like the Greeks who have their idols and put food out to them, because that's just ridiculous, you know, stone can't eat food. And we're not like the Jews with their, with their superstitions and their monthly feasts and their bodily mutilations. And I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm-hmm. How did you get there less than 100 years after Jesus yeah, died right. for my sins? Yeah. How did you separate Judaism from... You know, we're not talking of, no, of 2021. Quickly. And then somebody said, well, have you not read some of Paul's writings? Yeah, yeah, yeah I have. That's why I'm committed to the Jewish people. Yeah, because it was it was happening mm. even in the, in the latter parts of the first century. Right. We as Gentiles were trying to mm. shove away anything to do with Judaism yeah. and Jewish people. Yeah, that's right. So... Getting back to the Holocaust, yeah, the anti-Semitism. Yeah, we, we we started off calling ourselves Shadows of Shoah Trust. We changed our name about two years ago uh, because nobody knows what Shoah is. <laughs> yep, uh, and also to to make a statement that we are sticking to this issue and we're not going to be distracted over into these sidelines that even. Some in the Jewish community are universalizing the Holocaust, which yeah. I find disturbing. So we're going to stick to the course. We're a small operation, uh, but we have produced three exhibitions and we, uh, we've produced an, an app recently. Yes, for yeah. iPhone, I've got iPad. that on my phone. Good on you. So, so if anybody's interested in that, they can search this, the various stores for Holocaust Foundation and they'll find it. Yep. So it contains a lot of our stories. It contains a reasonably long essay on anti-Semitism. It contains uh, interviews with the last Nazi hunter. And it opens our eyes to uh, another view or an expanded view on anti-Semitism to the the nice, clean, I suppose, perfumed view that we have here in New Zealand in particular. Sure. Yeah, that's right. The the essay that I wrote on anti-Semitism that's in the app, um, I, I do a survey of uh, modern forms of anti-Semitism, and the first thing I mention is anti-Zionism. Now, later in this interview, we'll deal with that and we'll try yep. to define it. But I'll just make a comment about the fact that anti-Semitism through history has morphed according to the change in age and culture and the people groups among which it arises. So, for example, during the Middle Ages, uh, it was mostly sort of Christian anti-Semitism was this attitude that the Jews have been rejected and it's right for us to execute them. So that was the predominant form of anti-Semitism. And then when we get to the Nazi era, because Darwinianism was so strong, it tended to be a racial kind of, Anti-Semitism. That's right. They were less evolved, and yeah, 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 and, and yeah. All of that. Too, too bad that seventy-five percent of the um, professors in Nazi Germany were Jewish. You know, so, uh, but yeah, that was the rationale. It yeah. was largely that we needed to get rid of them for the purity of the Aryan race. But today, the prevalent form of anti-Semitism, certainly in the West, is anti-Zionism. In other words, anti-Israelism. A- a- anti anti the Jewish people's right to their homeland and the land of Israel. That's a pretty good definition, yeah. yeah. And so that is a reflection of the fact that the idea of human rights is so uh, so much currency in that. So that's how anti-Semitism often shows itself. Yeah. But ultimately, 
It's just a new garb for an ancient hatred. So it's, it's the same thing. And, and it's so often, it's, it's in the background, there's... Um, Different topic, that, and I don't want to get into the whole colonialism or anything, mm-hmm. but we had a discussion at one point in the church, and it was about the, 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 the English coming in, bringing the gospel, and then got into the, the whole land grab and everything mm-hmm. you know, and all of that. And one of our older English gentlemen turned to one of our Maori church members mm-hmm. and said, just get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was 150 years ago. Just get over it. Wow. And I thought, you ignorant man. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a number of things I could say about that. I mean, I mean this this uh, country was founded on a treaty. Yeah. A yeah. solemn As I say, we, we don't want to get into that, but, but a similar attitude, I think, in the church to the Jews. anti-Semitism sure. is like, just, just not, yeah. not get over it, but move what's, on, what's the big on. deal? That's, yeah, that's, move on. That's right. Yeah. If you just convert to Christianity, you'll be fine. Yeah, I think this this willingness to dismiss uh, the issue of Israel, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. <laughs> it's one of the people we met in Israel was uh, Jerry Bulow, mm-hmm. and uh, he's. I haven't met him, but is he from Christchurch? Originally? I think he might have been originally. Um, he's he currently he and his wife live in, in live Nim, right mm-hmm. on the on the Galilee. They, the house overlooks Galilee. It's great. Okay. Um, and so he's a, a, a tour host. Okay. And mostly he does tours of evangelicals, most of them from America, sadly. Right. He'd really like to do tours with non-believers because he'd like to tell them about Yeshua, tell them of the land from a from a Christian point of view. Um, but. He says, uh, he says they, they just don't get it. Mm. The, these, are, these are Christians who come to Israel because it's Israel, the land of the Scriptures, mm. Jesus walked here, da-da-da-da-da. And he says, and they, they still don't get it. They don't get the relevance of Israel for today? Yeah, as Christians. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and that to me, that, 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 you know, and another thing for you as well, you go, how can you not mm. get it? Yeah, that's, it's very frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. You wonder what text they're reading. <laughs> <laughs> Which version of the Bible you're in? So you might, you must have a um, I don't know. Do you have a balance problem because you, you've got the the. Uh, Holocaust and anti-Semitism Foundation, which is, as you say, sectarian. It's not non-sectarian. Non-sectarian. Yeah. So, and, and then on the other side of things is, is is trying to reach us idiot Christians. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you have a problem with that sometimes? Well, I have to respect the boundaries between these um, activities. Yeah. And I think I succeed, and I'm, I'm pretty careful. Uh, but while we're talking about the non-sectarian works that I do, I'll also talk about the Israel Institute. The Israel Institute, yep. Good time so, to bring so, that so, in. So, so, he's got so many blooming hats. <laughs> the uh, context for the Israel Institute of New Zealand is that you might recall that in 2016, on Christmas Eve, no less, uh, New Zealand co-sponsored UN Security Council Resolution 2334. And New Zealand chose to do that with Venezuela. Now, remind us, because that's a long time ago for us now, and most of us don't care because it wasn't New Zealand. Right. It's Israel, so who cares? Indeed. And it was a a very strongly anti-Israel resolution, and we chose to co-sponsor that thanks to Murray McCulley. We as the nation. Yes. With uh, Venezuela, Malaysia, and Senegal. And uh, Malaysia is a very anti-Semitic nation. Venezuela is a cot case. 
and Senegal is also a very anti-Semitic nation. So we co-sponsored this resolution. It, it denied that deny the Jewish people's rights to their own, own land. It was a, yeah, it, it, we could unpack it, but it's a very anti-Zionist yep. resolution. And I felt like I'd been run over by a bus uh, because I care deeply about where my nation stands on these issues, amongst other things. And after, I don't know, a week or so, I recorded a short video and publicised it, uh, giving some commentary on it. And you, you can still find it online. And I was contacted by a, a businessman in Wellington. Uh, he felt as I did. And we started to talk. And then uh, we worked with Dr. David Kerman, who's an academic from the Jewish community. Yes. Yeah. And so the three of us launched the Israel Institute of New Zealand in the middle of 2017. And we are transparently about advocacy, analysis, and commentary. Uh, so make no bones about it, we're about advocating for Israel. And it's a, neither a Jewish nor Christian work. It's a non-sectarian yep. work. Uh, Dr. David Kerman is, does by far the majority of the work. He's, he's really outstanding in his commentary and uh, his analysis, and he's a machine. I'm sure he's very glad you joined with him to form the Institute. Yeah, I, I've contributed in terms of media primarily. I've done some commentary, but most of my work is in terms of producing videos and things like that. Is that the I Am a Zionist video? Yes, we've done that. Uh, so the background to that the, uh, is that um, Juliet Moses, a Jewish lawyer from Auckland, wrote an article some time before this video was done. It was entitled I Am a Zionist. And when I saw her article, read her article, I said to her, this needs to be a video. So maybe a year after she wrote it, we uh, recorded a short video based on that article and we posted it online. And within five days, we had 500,000 views. Wow. Yeah. Remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. And um, so we went on to record a series and we've got them all on uh, iamazionist.com. There's also a Facebook page. And they're also posted on the Israel Institute website. Yeah. So we'll put all those links in the, in the text below here. Great. Yeah, the Israel Institute is israelinstitute.nz. So we've, the I'm a Zionist videos were done with people like Alfred Narol, yep. who was a member of parliament at the time. Um, uh, Eric George. Have you met Eric? He's haven't a, met Eric, no. Okay, he's a um, Maori Samoan um, academic who's okay. based in West Auckland, young guy. And others. Yeah. So, so, so what does it mean when somebody stands up and says, I am a Zionist, what does that mean? Well, we might have to define... Well, you, you did a pretty good um, definition of Zionism. I, I would argue that Zionism is the movement for the establishment of, the, of a state for the Jewish people in their ancestral indigenous homeland. Yeah. Um, so when I say I am a Zionist, it means I agree with the statement that mm -hmm. Israel, the, the area of land which we call Israel today, mm -hmm. is the traditional home of the Jewish people and they have a right to have their own self-determining nation there. I, I like that. That's good. Yeah. And now that this state has been established, you might say that Zionism um, supports the continuation of that. Pressure. Does that mean that I agree with everything that that state of Israel does? Well, I certainly don't. <laughs> I, I have strong objections to some things Israel does and some of its positions. I'm conservative in my moral values, yep. so I don't like some of the things they do. But I support 
uh, unconditionally their right to be in that land, and, and this is without going to biblical arguments, yes. which we, we will do later. Uh, so on the basis of history, morality, legality, uh, archaeology, all of these things, all of these um, issues. My wife, incidentally, spent, I don't know how many years doing a PhD on Zionism. Uh, so she's looked at it from all those points of view, yeah. looking at the history of Zionism in New Zealand up to 1948. And it's interesting that even though the Zionists at, at times used colonialist language at times, by definition, it's not a colonialist movement because what is a colony? It's where you establish an outpost yeah. from some other base. Now, where was the other base? Where was the other base? They yeah. were going home to their own homeland. Yes. Right? So it's certainly not, by definition, it is not colonisation. They're returning to their homeland. Yeah. But not seen that way by most of the world. But of course not. It's because of the propaganda. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the language that is used by uh, anti-Zionists. Yeah. Um, comes up where people go, oh, yes, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So another project that we have done for the Israel Institute in New Zealand is we've produced a series of films called Israel in Five. So in five minutes we've got various individuals addressing particular topics like um, the accusation of apartheid or the UN's condemnation of Israel or uh, all of those issues around human rights and the legality of the venture and, and the security difficulties that Israel is faced with. Yep. So, again, it's a non-sectarian work and it's a, an educational resource and I would encourage your viewers to make use of that it's, work. Uh, one of the things that I found, I, mean, I don't know how many times you've been to Israel, we've, you know, we've only been once. I've been six Excuse times. me. Shut up. <laughs> six I, times. I talked to a, what's her name down in Tauranga that does the dance... Um, Gaynor, yeah, Gaynor. When I said, I said, oh, Gaynor, we're going, we're going to Israel. She goes, oh, I'm so jealous. I'm going. You've been 17 times. Wow. How can you be jealous of me going once? Wow. Um, but yeah, everyone's going. Oh, hang on. Do you do you feel safe there? And, and all these things because of all the lies that are being thrown sure. around the sure. world. And as we get there, you go, hang on. That's the safest place in the world. I felt perfectly safe sure. in Israel. Yeah. You know, do I see Arabs and Jews living alongside? Absolutely, I do. Mm. You know, wh wh where's the information? Are you, you know, what are you reading or watching or listening to that you're getting this opposite information? Yeah, you've brought to mind a, a visit we made to Ramallah in 2019. I think it was 2019. It was very interesting. So we were taken in by a German friend into Ramallah and we went to visit um, Arafat's tomb. Right. So we're, we're, we're within, I don't know, 100 metres of Arafat's tomb and walking back to the car and a Palestinian lawyer walked past us muttering to himself, our people are so stupid. And my German friend, who's smart, said, excuse me, sir, can we, we talk to you about what you're saying? And, uh, and I was carrying a video camera. Right. And he said, look, do you mind if my friend videos the conversation? So we had this 11-minute conversation with a, an articulate, passionate Palestinian lawyer. And he, I'll summarise it, he said, the problem here is not the Jews. The problem here is our own leadership. The Palestinian leadership is so corrupt. He referred to it as a gang. And he, he had no problem with the Jewish uh, yeah. conduct. He actually said, what we need is a Trump. So, uh, 
interesting. But but, but that interview there. that interview yeah. is on the Israel Institute of okay. New Zealand website. So yeah. it's a fascinating interview, it's, and it's very funny. It's similar to some of the uh, some of the Arabs that we met, the the Arab Israelis that we met. Uh, when we were there, uh, when they were talking about the two-state. Yeah. And, and they go, no, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> Please, right. we, we, we don't want no. that happening. We, no. we want the Jewish government. Yeah, that's right. The Israeli government. Yeah. And, I mean, I one of the points I've made is that if you really care about the Palestinians, you should support Israel. Yeah. Okay. So a, a, a lot of anti-Zionism then, let's, we'll move on to the spiritual side, but sure. a, a lot of anti-Zionism is from ignorance of what's actually happening in the land. Yeah, I tend to, I, I tend to sort of c- categorise these things um, in several ways. So you get certain people for whom this is true. It's just ignorance. They haven't thought about it. They haven't yep. investigated it. They've just heard from the mainstream media and some very poor Christian theologians, for example, an anti-Zionist argument, and they embrace it. Yeah. So that's a kind of a soft anti-Zionism. The, they, they, they believe what they want to believe. Or they believe what they've been led to believe. Mm. Um, whereas there's a hard anti-Zionism where people have actually investigated it and they've just chosen to take a hard line even though the facts can be got. Yep. And they've chosen to ignore those facts and, and there's something very dark and deep that causes them to persist in their anti-Zionism. Uh, so I make that distinction between a hard and a soft um, anti-Zionism. Right. So how do we... Uh, the, what amazes me is, and, and I watched your, your series of videos on this, which is evangelical anti-Zionism. How can you get... Yeah, the series is called Evangelical, evangelical Zionism. Zionism. Yeah, but yeah. how can you get Christians hmm. that are anti-Zionist? I'm going, what Bible are you reading? Well, I think that. So we defined Zionism before. Yeah. Let's define evangelical for a moment. Okay. So how would you define it? Oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, well, even the evangel is, of course, the good news, the gospel. Yeah, sure. Um, so, to me, in a an evangelical is, is, I think, in a modern terminology, it would be a Christian that believes that we should be spreading the gospel. To okay. Others. Okay. That'd be one of the components. Yeah. Uh, another component, I think, is that they have a high view of scripture. In other words, they would see the scriptures as having authority. So that would be... I thought that was us fundamentalists. <laughs> well, there's an interesting book, Four Views on How Evangelicalism Should Be Defined. Okay. Very interesting. But, but most of the contributors to that do hold that there ought to be a high view of the Scriptures and the authority of the Scriptures. Yeah. And if you compare so-called fundamentalism with what... Liberal, mentioned, liberalism, the liberal well, church. Or... Well, let's compare fundamentalism, which happened over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was the sort of term of of the time, evangelicalism came out as a sort of a friendlier version where they weren't going to be fighting with people or fighting amongst themselves as much, yep. and they were a little um, a little softer around the edges. But I, I'll tell you this, <laughs> let's step back yet again. We're talking about a series called Evangelical Zionism. Yes. Which you... Yeah. It's a, it's so a, I'll, I'll hold that up to that yeah, camera. There we go. Yeah. So I, I filmed this in, in 2015 in Israel. And because I'm a really bad businessman, you can see it all for nothing online. Oh, right. That's, yeah, you're yeah. not going to make any money out yeah, of that. But it's also available on DVD. <laughs> so, and I thought long and hard, what do I call this? What, what do I call it? 
because I know knew it was dealing with replacement theology and Christian anti-Zionism. Yes. Those are the things I'm trying to address, and I'm trying to affirm a biblically-based Zionism. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not that comfortable with the term Christian Zionism, even though I am a Christian Zionist, only because there are very many Christian Zionists whose behaviour and position I'm not that comfortable with. Right. So I chose evangelical Zionism because it's a little bit narrower, and I, even that I struggled with because there are people out there now who identify as evangelicals and I want nothing to do with them because of the positions they take. Yeah. But I thought to myself, well, I'm going to take the high ground on this and I'm going to emphasise the fact that an evangelical is meant to have a high view of Scripture and he's meant to draw his authority from Scripture. From, yes. In other words, if he holds a position, he ought to be able to justify it from the Scriptures. Well, I said that to somebody earlier today, because we've done a few podcasts today, if you argue your point with me and you go, this Scripture, this Scripture, this Scripture, this Scripture, even if I disagree with you, I'll go, Perry, fair enough. Sure. Yeah, but if, if, if you tell me I feel this and I think that, yeah. without touching the Bible, I'm going to, Perry? Yeah, go away. Yeah. Go away. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. That, that's the reason I've chosen to emphasise that issue of the authority of Scripture in yep. this series. Because I'm arguing that those who are Christian and Zionists do not deserve to be called evangelicals because I'm, I believe they cannot justify their position from the Scriptures. Now, they can come up with all sorts of schemes and they're becoming increasingly sophisticated in how they argue their position. Yeah, yeah. But it's just smoke and mirrors. Yeah. You, you cannot becomes, argue that position from Scripture. Well, you can, but it's illogical and incoherent. Yeah. Um, and I address a bunch of those uh, strategies in the series. You know, it's, it's, it's like at times, and I said this to uh, Michael Cook from Creation Ministries International. Mm-hmm. The, uh, when I was at Rima, I talked to uh, a lot of different people, and one of them was that he was the, one of the world's top Hebrew scholars. He's not a believer. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, what does the writer of Genesis 1 want us to believe? Mm-hmm. He, gives, he says, he wants you to believe that God created the world in, 20, in six 24-hour days, literal six 24-hour days. He does this by using morning and evening. He does this by giving each day a number. Of course, obviously, it's not true. We know the world evolved, but that's what he wants you to believe. Yeah. And I'm going, I don't mind arguing that with non-Christians. I have trouble arguing that with Christians. How do Christians read what plain, what a non-Christian sure. plainly says the Bible says? Sure. But you tell me it says something different. Sure. And the same with Zionism. This is what the Bible plainly says. How can you sure. twist that to mean anything else? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm going to be provocative now. And I'm going to say to you that the same people who hold that very that very view on creation, with which I agree, uh, ought to be consistent, and they all ought to affirm Israel's restoration. I'm not asking for a detailed picture. I'm not asking that you believe this about the end days and this about the end days. I'm asking a simple thing, that you affirm that the Bible teaches plainly that Israel will one day be restored to her land. Yeah. That's what I'm asking. Well, because the same logic that you talked about in regard to the Scriptures and creation... Yeah. The same logic is applied to Israel. It should be, because what you're dealing with there is what theologians call hermeneutics. This is how you handle the text. 
And I'll tell you, there's a whole lot more scripture relating to Israel's restoration than there is. Than there is about creation. A whole lot more. But we don't know our Bibles. This is the problem, Perry. And this, this is what really annoys me. This is what, you know, when I'm preaching, if I go around churches and I'm preaching and, and I look up, you know, I've read a scripture and I've moved on a bit and I look up and somebody's still got his nose in the Bible. I go, ah, oh, somebody got it. You know, sure. um, we are biblically illiterate. Yeah, sure. As a modern church, yeah. Um, we, people say, "Well, hang on, this cannot be the fulfilment of God's promises promises to Israel because they are not believing in God." You go, well, yes, of course they're not believing in God because the Bible actually prophesies that Israel will come back into the land not believing in him. I, I think that's the case, yeah. You know, they go, oh, oh, I didn't know it said that. You know, because you don't know your Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I, and on the other side, a lot of so-called Christian Zionists do the do the position no favours because they've got a very romantic view of Israel. Yep. They've got a view where they're completely uncritical of Israel. And I have, I have deep concerns for the Palestinian people, but I just ask for justice and uh, clarity and honesty in the way that those positions or those conditions are assessed. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's a hermeneutical issue, ultimately. It's an issue of how do you handle the text. And, and getting back to the creation guys, I, I ask them to be consistent. Yeah. If they're holding that if, position. If you believe in a six-day literal yeah, you creation to, because of the text. Because of the text. You should also affirm the restoration of Israel. Yeah. 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 Because if you analogize the biblical uh, message, yep. the whole biblical message as a journey, you cannot tell me that the destination is less important than the origin. Is that fair? Yeah. You yeah. cannot yeah. tell me that the destination is less important than the origin. Where things are going in history is really, really important. I mean, the scriptures have the audacity to present past, present, and future history. Yeah. And where you're going has a profound impact on how you understand the present. The creationists would argue that the present is profoundly impacted by where we've come from. I agree with them. But let's be consistent. <laughs> the future is as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Look, I've had theologians who are very skilled say to me, why are you so concerned with something that's a peripheral area of doctrine? Pardon me? Peripheral? Yep. Uh, my argument in this um, series is that there is no theme in Scripture more prominent than God's determination to restore the Jewish people to their land and to himself. And I'll argue that. I'll, I'll fight for that position. There's no theme more prominent. So how can you refer to it as a peripheral area of doctrine? Yeah. Because that, that's, that's part of his main point, and he yeah. uses that all the way through, yeah. even when he's talking about us as Gentiles, even when he's mm -hmm. talking about the new Jerusalem after the, the millennial reign, all that theme regarding Israel is there all the way through yeah. as the main thing. Um, it's, do you find that, and when we talk about biblical knowledge, do you find that the, the people that you end up discussing with, <laughs> arguing with, that... Do they have a good biblical knowledge? In, in, fact, in fact, there's very little engagement face-to-face. Um, -face yeah? With, uh, yeah, very little, actually, because this is a really heated area of, of, uh, of debate. Very heated. You've got to ask yourself why, too. Yeah. And, and I, look, let me just, again, divert and step back. I became a believer in the 70s as a 13-year-old. 
And uh, the circles I was moving in were not very sophisticated, but I can tell you this, that I had a, have a distinct memory that there was a great deal of favour and warmth towards Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, and I've seen that change radically in this country. Yeah, within the church. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. And, yep. and I can go back to, say, the 1990s, and I think that's particularly where it started to shift. And I remember in 2002... Um, what was the Bible College of New Zealand? You probably upset some of you. Lay look good, yep. So 2002, they had a, I don't know if the magazine is still published, called Reality Magazine. And I got a copy of uh, that magazine and the whole issue was dedicated to the issue of Israel. And I sat on my lawn and read it and I was deeply, deeply disturbed. Jesus was referred to as a Palestinian under occupation. Uh, there was all sorts of anti-Zionist anti nonsense in this magazine. Yeah. It was appalling. And as I started to talk to others uh, about this, I found a number of people who had graduated from what was the Bible College of New Zealand in the 70s and 80s. And they said it was nothing like that. There was a very firm and warm attitude towards Israel and Israel's future restoration. Something profoundly changed. And move forward to 2012... And who do they feature? By this time, they're called Laidlaw. Yep. Laidlaw College. But the Reverend Dr. Stephen Sizer, who's probably the leading Christian anti-Zionist. Now, Reverend Dr. Stephen Sizer has been censured by his own Anglican church in the UK for anti-Semitism. Now, I remember on one of your videos the, on the evangelical Zionism Mm. series that you you gave a quote from him which was just a shocking quote yeah he, he's he's a shocker and he's um, shared platforms with Holocaust deniers uh, and as I say his own Anglican church censured him yep. for anti anti-semitism uh, so here he was featured at Laidlaw College in 2012 and and the same um, lecturers who were problematic then are still present yeah uh, one of them has come out openly and said he wants to see Israel isolated from the world community. Wow. Wow. That's extremely serious in my view. Yeah. And um, in 2012, one of the things that really disturbed me especially was that the, where were the Christian leaders standing up with outrage over this? Where were they? I, I made a noise as best I could about it. I set up a website and I started to write things and I was never challenged on the content of what I wrote. I went after these guys yep. as best I could. Uh, but where, where was the outcry from Christian leaders? I didn't hear much. Uh, we sit back because it's a peripheral issue. Mm. It's like when, when you talk about the, that um, there's a major denomination in the States that, because uh, we are talking about uh, creation before, they, mm. they, they changed their stance on creation. So they used to be very, very strongly six-day recent creation, 24-hour days. Mm. And they said, well, no, we, we don't hold to that in a concrete way anymore. We allow that there are different interpretations right. of that. And somebody wrote, and I can't remember who it was, but God bless them for doing so, and said, well, so do you hold now different views on the crucifixion of the death of Jesus? because there's various different views, you know, everything from Lloyd Gehring to the truth. Yeah. Um, what, what are you going to do with these? Are you gonna, and this is, I think, the problem with, with, you know, when I'm looking for people to interview and to talk with on these podcasts, mm. 
I, I hit the net and I look for these things and I go, okay, this guy's a, a professor in a, a seminary. Mm-hmm. Now I've got to look up, <laughs> is this a, a, a fundamental... Uh, conservative cemetery, cemetery. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that bridal college, uh, or is this one of these liberal bridal college? You know, seminaries because because even though the title of his article and what I read could look sure in line sure. with what we're talking about, you could get deeper and find out that he's an evangelical anti-Zionist. Yeah, that's right. And you're, you're touching on the sort of role of academia. And look. I think we need as many academics as we can. But I think what happens is in these institutions is they, is they go after prestige, academic prestige, and they bring in people who have the credentials but who are not necessarily committed to this issue that we discussed before. That is the authority of Scripture. Yes. Because I would argue that you cannot get an anti-Zionist position from the text. You have to import it from elsewhere. Yeah. Just as you cannot get a replacement theology or, or the technical word is supersessionism, you cannot get that position from the text. You have to bring it in. All right, so the, you, problem, the problem we have now is, uh, and we'll use the seminaries again. So let's, let's go back 100 years. You've got a young fellow decides to go off to Bible college and get trained as a, as a mm-hmm. pastor, as a minister. He is taught... Supersessionism, mm-hmm. replacement theology by his lecturers, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what they got taught. So he then graduates, he gets his pastorship, he's pretty intelligent. So they ask him to come back as a lecturer at the college. So what does he teach? Mm. Replacement theology. So mm. you know, he's getting it in 1900, 1920, somebody else is getting it, 1940, So by the time we get to 2021, mm. these guys have had over 100 years. They don't know anything else but. Yeah. Sure. The church has replaced Israel. Mm. So how do we open their eyes? Well, we um, we do things like <laughs> what I tried to do yes. with evangelical Zionism. Uh, there, there are so many ways you can approach this. I mean, one of the pe- appeals that I would make to these people is, look, there's more at stake than the issue of Israel in talking about this. It's the integrity of the text uh, in the sense that if you dismantle the role of Israel in the text, you ultimately... Uh, dismantle the uh, coherence of the text. Yeah. So he, I make one argument uh, in the series that those of us who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, we should do that on the basis of what is predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures concerning the coming Mashiach. We should. Yes. That, that's how we should do it. Because that's how the New Testament believers did it. That's right. So they didn't just sort of treat the New Testament writings as though they were sitting up here. No, they they put them on a foundation. And, and you could see that through the book of Acts. They listened to what Paul had to say and they sort of said, okay, well, is, it, is this consistent yeah. with, the, with the Hebrew scriptures? Well, they didn't have any New Testament scriptures then. That's right. That's right. So they tested what they heard. So we need to have that sort of role, or, excuse me, that sort of practice with any teaching that comes along. We need to be seeing it anchored in the Hebrew scriptures. And, and this is important. The Hebrew Scriptures lay a foundation. The New Testament comes along. It adds additional information, but it does not negate those foundations that were laid in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, as soon as you take a replacement theology position, what you're doing is saying, okay, the Hebrew Scriptures did predict that one day Israel would be restored to the land, but now in the New Testament that has been redefined or reinterpreted and it's been fulfilled in surprising ways, is one of the phrases they yes. use. But what you've just done is you've dismantled the plain meaning of the Hebrew 
text. Yes. And you've, you've undermined your own foundation. You do that, and theology is like that. You dismantle an important area of the text, of theology, and it has implications. Yeah. It impacts my, my dad. My dad was a Bible Society representative. He had, um, he had two Bibles, I remember. One was completely blank. And he would hand it to somebody in the front row and he said, just hold on to that, I'll get you to look up a verse shortly. And he'd ask them to look up Thessalonians or something and they'd open it up, it's blank, and he'd go, your Bible might as well be blank if you don't read it. Right. But the other one had so many bits, little squares cut out of it. Okay. On, on every page there was sure. bits cut out. And he says, if you take this verse out, you've got to take that verse out and you've got to take yeah, that yeah. verse out and that and that and that. And you destroy it. And it is, it's, you know. It's a coherent You document. destroy the integrity. Yeah. It cannot last. It's a self-authenticating document in the sense that it has the audacity to write history in advance. And and I do think that Israel is the prime example of that. Uh, The idea that Israel is back in the land, it should not surprise us. The idea that the Jewish people are hated, that should not surprise us. It didn't surprise us before 1948. Not that you and I were around then. But before then... The church were expecting Israel to come back into the land. Some of them were, yeah. yeah. yeah some of them were. But I think yes. what we've done, we, we, I'm going to have to get you back because we're out of time. We're just This has just gone so fast. But if, I, if we look at the city of Jerusalem now, mm-hmm. right, So, and we're talking Old Testament scriptures, New Testament scriptures, mm-hmm. you've got the old city of Jerusalem mm-hmm. and you've got the modern city of Jerusalem. So if we call the old city of Jerusalem the Old Testament scriptures, and we've built upon that, mm-hmm. right? So we have the, the the major city of Jerusalem. What has been done with those Old Testament scriptures by those who don't see Israel's coming back into the land? They've built over the old city, sure, and they've built the new city on top of it. So so it's now become a tell, as opposed to still being there. And I think that's what we've done is we've taken the Old Testament. And that, that's our reference. Uh, and that's, it's a historical reference document. It's not a theological document that drives me. And I think that's the problem. Because for me, it's mm-hmm. a the-, the Old Testament is a theological document that drives me. Sure. Yeah. And, and even, let's, let's broaden out again, uh, in the sense that the, the things that are under attack today in society, let's be far more broad, you know, gender and yep. marriage and family and all those ideas and nations, all of those ideas are established in the first few chapters of the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes. You've got these uh, divine institutions that are established there. It's not surprising that those are under attack along with Israel, because there is, Israel is also a divine institution. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And it all connects back to these foundational issues. And when we, dis- when we allow those to be destroyed both within our um, Christian communities, but in the broader society, we're in for trouble. Uh, Things are going to collapse. Yeah, all right. We'll do this again. Perry, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome.